0: Godly people do ungodly things sometimes. Noah's no exception. A godly man, Scripture's made it very clear, but here he does an ungodly thing. If you back up just a bit, you'll see that that Noah just finished setting a great example for believers. I mean, God had rescued him from this flood, delivered his family in this ark, And then the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark is he gathers his family together and he formally thanks God. A great example to us. I mean, here he is saved by God with his family. He doesn't come out and kiss the ground. He doesn't come out and, and, and start looking for food. He doesn't start setting up a shelter. The first thing that he does is he gathers up his family and says, wait, stop. Before we do anything else, he builds an altar. He builds a place of worship and they worship God. They formally thank God for delivering them. And that's exactly what you would expect Noah to do. I mean, in Hebrews 11 and second Peter, chapter three, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. He's called a preacher of righteousness. God says of him through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 14, he holds Noah up alongside Daniel and Job as men of righteousness, whose examples we are to follow. So it's no surprise knowing that about Noah. When he comes off the ark, the first thing he does is to worship God. That is exactly what we would expect. We would expect from righteous Noah. Today's text. Unexpected. Today's text is unexpected. One of the things that the Bible is, is it is a a collection of of heroes throughout history. One of the things that the Bible gives us is, is it gives us um, stories from people's lives who have loved and honored God before us. And then we're told in Hebrews 13 that we should look at these heroes. We should look at these examples and we should we should look for things in their life to imitate them. Like Paul says in First Corinthians 11, one imitate me as I imitate Christ or Hebrews 13, seven tells all of us. It says, listen, remember Your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What that means is that God gives us heroes. God gives us examples and we are to look at their lives and there are things that are worthy of imitation. So dads look at other godly dads and say, how does he do that with his kids? I'm going to do that. And moms look at godly moms and husbands look at godly husbands and wives look at godly wives and and employees look at godly employees and employers look at godly employers. And we look to see how other people who do this better than we do worship and honor the Lord in life. And we follow their example. And so Noah has been presented in Scripture as one whose example we are to follow. But it's very interesting It's very interesting. The heroes in your Bible are not perfect. They are to be imitated, but they are not to be idolized. And that's a big difference. There are people in this life, and you have people in your life right now that are worthy of your imitation in many areas of their lives. But you begin to idolize somebody when you want to become somebody. You do not want to idolize Noah. And today is a perfect example of why you do not want to idolize Noah. Because we find here is that while Noah was a godly man, he was a godly man that did ungodly things. This is also helpful in in showing us that, that this book is written by God and not man. Because if one of the things that this book is is a collection of heroes that you are to imitate, if man is writing a book full of heroes that you are to imitate, we would leave out the story of Noah getting drunk and passing out naked in his trailer. That's not going to be the story that we're going to include in the book. That's going to be omitted altogether or it's going to be excused. Arthur Pink said that We have a a tendency and a propensity to conceal the blemishes of those we admire. But God wrote this book and God wrote this book and God wants us to understand the difference between God and people. And God wants us to understand that while people are are to be imitated in many ways, in ways that they honor and glorify God, people are not to be idolized. And the reason is, is because the best of men are still men at best. Even the best of men are still just men at best. Let's pray. And we'll get into Genesis chapter 9. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. I thank you for giving us a way to see what is really true in this life and what is false. Thank You for giving us a way to sift everything that comes our way and claims to be truth. God, You know that we're susceptible to believe things that aren't from You. You know our wicked hearts and and we often want to make hard truth softer. God, You know that there are times where Your Word speaks directly to us and, and it would mean that we would have to change things in our life. God, many of us don't want to change. And many of us don't want to do hard things and say hard things and live hard lives. And frankly, God, you know, we're, we're tempted at times to go our own way and not your way. So, God... May these not be mere words today, because they're not. And may they they sink deeply into our souls and in our hearts. God, embed Your truth in our souls. And and may it be our understanding and our realization of what is really true that would change us, God. That we would not become knowers of Your Word, but believers of Your Word. We would not become... Uh, a a people who have memorized Bible verses, but a people who have internalized Your Word in their hearts. And may we be a people who do not merely listen to Your Word, but do what it says. So God, today, as we learn of things that please You and do not please You, as as we learn of how You turn hopelessness into hopefulness, God, may we be encouraged to live lives that bring glory and honor to You. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's funny, I didn't have my Bible first service. My wife had to bring me my Bible second service, I forgot it. And I was totally surprised how thrown off I was not having my Bible. I felt like a professional golfer without his golf clubs trying to use something that I didn't know how to use. It's kind of funny. So I am, I'm so grateful that this is here. So thank you, my family for rushing that to me. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter nine, verses 18 through 19. Now everybody's going to start hide, hiding, my Bible just to mess with me. Right. Genesis chapter nine. Uh, we're going to go a verse at a time. We'll start here with the, the first two verses and we'll, we'll stop. We'll think about what it is that we're reading and, uh, We'll draw some conclusions. Verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Parenthesis here. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah had three sons, we learn here. Noah had three sons. And from these three sons come all the people of the earth. So God is starting over in Noah. Noah is like a second Adam. Okay, we all have we are all descendants of Adam. We are also all descendants of Noah. Three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, all people of the earth descended from these men. But we're told something significant and specific about one of these sons and his name is Ham. There's a parenthesis here about Ham that isn't here about the other brothers. And you're going to see why, right? Because the story is about this brother in particular. But before the author, what the author is doing is before you read about what Ham does here, he wants you to make a connection between Ham and the Canaanites. So he's reminding you that Ham's son was Canaan. This is Canaan's dad that you're going to read about. This is Canaan's dad. And Canaan, of course, following him were the Canaanites. And so those who were first reading this account, they knew who the Canaanites were and they know who Canaan was and they knew that the Canaanites were enemies of God, that they were people who did not love God, that did not honor God, that did not obey God. And so the author is saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something about how this rebellion started in this family, because we're going to trace it back to Canaan and we're going to look and see what his father did. And so it gives a very sad explanation, our story today. It gives a very sad explanation of how a united family that loves God becomes a divided family. It's really sad. Right, Noah and his sons come off the ark and they worship together. And, and here they are, seemingly all, honoring and glorifying God, singing the songs Saying the words of praise, thanking God. But this godly family tree, if you will, is going to have ungodly branches. And here we see the beginning of one of these ungodly branches and how it how it began growing on this tree. It began. It began with a wicked man. This is Ham. It began with a wicked man who resented his father, Noah, who resented his father and exulted in his father's failures. He, he delighted in seeing his dad fall. He delighted in his dad's sin. And so verse 18 and 19 introduce us again to this family. That's going to give an explanation of how things go horribly wrong in this family and it is the beginning of a shoot that grows off of this family that is that is ungodly for generations and generations, starting here with him. First, verse 20, we'll go one verse at a time now. This is who Noah was and what Noah began to do. New life now after the flood, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. And Noah was a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. And we're going to see here that he makes wine. He's a a viticulturist who becomes a viniculturist, right? Study of grapes, study of wine. He's the first winemaker that we read about in the Bible. What it's telling us here, though, very clearly and significantly is that Noah was a worker. Noah worked. And work is not incidental in your Bible. Genesis is making a point. One of the points that Genesis is making is that work is a good thing. And we need to hear this. We've already said it several times if you've been a part of the sermon series. Work is a good thing. We tend to think that work is a bad thing. And so you've got to avoid work or work as little as possible. We don't live for the work week. What do we live for? We live for the weekends. And work is just kind of what you what you have to do but you know the greatest thing about heaven we think is that there will be no work I'm not even entirely sure about that but we think that that is what heaven is going to be like because work is wicked it's evil how many vacation days do I get how many times can I call in sick how bad a worker can I be and not get fired these are the kind of questions that young men are asking themselves today But work is a good thing. So here we go. Noah, new life after the flood. What do you need to know right off the bat? This man is working. Here's how he's described. He's a man of the soil. So, men, what are you? What would people say of you? Are you a a man of the soil? Are you a man of construction? Are you a man of technology? Are you a man of computers? Are you a man of, of art? Are you a man of sales? Are you a man of marketing? Or are you a man of sleep? This is not what you want to be known for. Boy, that guy, he, man, he could rest. (laughs) What a rester he was. Are you a man of sleep? Are you a man of laziness? Are you a man of complaining? Noah, we're told, he was a man of the soil. Noah got his hands dirty. Noah knew that work was a blessing. It was a good thing from God. And what his work brought was priceless. Provision, right? For this beautiful family, and these little children and this wife that God had had given him. So he's he's a man of the soil. This is what Noah's doing. He plants a vineyard. And the vineyard gets him in trouble. So we read now Noah's sin and shame delivered to us in just one verse. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Three facts. He drank the wine. He became drunk. He lay uncovered in his tent. It's a very short account with very few details. Typically, when the Bible gives you a short account with very few details, it is communicating God's disapproval. No embellishing, no, no, uh, and no more details that are given. Sometimes there'll be, be a lot more details that are given when you're highlighting something that God is pleased with, and that God is. is that, that's why the cross, right? Ultimately, there are more words in the Bible given to the cross than any other words, just communicating to us how glorious this is. Noah getting drunk and passing out naked in his tent. This is is short. It's given to us in sort of a punchy way by the author. And this is communicating to us that what is taking place here is grievous to God. This is not okay. This is not permissible. It signifies God's disapproval. And it is a fall for Noah because Noah, who had stayed sober in drunken company, now is drunk in sober company. You know, when for the hundred years, as far as we know, he lived very righteously. And here he was in the company of men who were not honoring God and he was sober that time he honored God and all that he did. And now here he is and God has wiped the earth of unrighteousness. And now here is this one godly family and it's here where Noah falls. It is true what first Corinthians ten twelve says, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You can imagine Noah can imagine his confidence going up doing pretty good for myself. I mean, God wiped out everyone except me, except me. This is how we turn God's blessings into being an echo of our worth and our value. I'm sure Noah could have fallen into the same temptation. I mean, here I am, one faithful guy, one godly guy. My family is saved because of me. I'm a righteous guy. I've been holy. I deserve a little reward here. And he drinks, and he drinks, and he drinks. We have to be very careful that we never stop seeking to fight our sin, that we never stop seeking to mortify our sin and to kill our sin and to grow in holiness. Because typically what happens is we take our foot off that accelerator and we crash. So here Noah is been sober and drunken company. Now he gets drunk in sober company. We have the first account here in the Bible of of drunkenness, which is a huge problem today. And we'll talk we'll talk a bit about it since it's introduced here in Genesis chapter nine. First, we want to understand this, right? Because we've got different views of, of of alcohol that are prevalent in the church today. So we want to have good views of everything and alcohol would be included in that. Noah's sin was not drinking alcohol. Noah's sin was drinking too much alcohol. You want to be very clear on that. Noah's sin was not that he drank alcohol. Noah's sin was that he drank too much alcohol. Alcohol, wine, good beer can be a wonderful blessing from God. It can be a wonderful blessing from God. Scripture says so. Proverbs 31.6, 31.6, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Psalm 104.15 says, wine gladdens the heart of men, which is why Matthew Henry said that wine should be used as a help and not a hindrance to our work and usefulness. Wine, alcohol, if used appropriately is can be used in a way that honors God, that can gladden the hearts of men and can be helpful and beneficial and a pleasure to God's people, a gift from him. Now, Matthew Henry also said drunkenness discovers and disgraces a man. Drunkenness discovers and disgraces a man. Too much alcohol discovers a man. It shows you who a man truly is. And not only does it discover him, it disgraces men. Men are shown and shamed through drunkenness. And some of you have seen this, all too close. And you have seen the evil and the wickedness within that was poured out in ways that it would not be poured out in a sober man, but it was poured out in a drunken man. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 15 and 16 warns us as well. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The Bible takes seriously delighting in the gifts of God, including wine. The Bible takes seriously abusing the gifts of God, as the prophet Habakkuk says here in chapter two. So drinking sin. Here's how we may sin when we drink. Number one. It is a sin to violate your conscience. It is a sin to violate your conscience. Your conscience is that voice people will describe it as, that voice that is within you that, that, that helps you discern what is right and what is wrong. It is a, a moral rudder within you. Your conscience is something that is given to you by God. It is God's Word written on your heart. If you have a strong conscience, your conscience lines up with God's Word. If you have a weak conscience, it may not line up with God's Word. Regardless, you obey your conscience. You obey your conscience. Some of you, when it comes to drinking alcohol, you may have a conscience issue. In other words, you would say, I do not believe that drinking alcohol is a universal sin That it's a sin for everybody to drink alcohol. But I believe for me, it is a sin. Maybe it's because of how you've handled alcohol in the past. Maybe it's because of um, uh, sensitivity to those who are close to you. Uh, Maybe it's because you've seen the impact that alcohol can have. And the, the negative effects it can have. And maybe it's ravaged your family. Whatever it is, you have a conscience issue. And when you drink alcohol... You feel like you are sinning and doing something you should not do. That is probably your conscience. You must listen to your conscience because if you don't listen to your conscience, it gets what the Bible calls seared and it gets like a hard exterior on it and it doesn't work anymore. And when your conscience doesn't work anymore, you are not going to be guided the way you ought to be guided in terms of what is right and wrong in your life. So if it's a conscience issue for you, you should not drink alcohol. Secondly, it is a sin to break civil laws. Romans 13 makes it clear. We live in America. We may not agree with all of the laws and rules in America, but we are called, unless it causes us to disobey God, to obey the laws and rules of the land we live in. And there are many civil laws, aren't there, in place in regards to alcohol. You may not drink if you are under 21 regardless of whether or not you think it's a dumb rule, it would be a sin to violate civil laws. Number three, it is a sin to idolize your liberties. Romans 14 talks about this. It is a sin to idolize your liberties. Is it a liberty for Christians to drink alcohol? Absolutely, it is a liberty for Christians to drink alcohol. But we must be careful that we don't idolize our liberties. That exercising our liberties doesn't become more important to us than loving God and loving others. This is where scripture gets in the idea of being a stumbling block. The question we must ask ourselves is, are you prioritizing the exercise of your liberty over loving God and others? So people who have. Oftentimes we've come from families who maybe they were teetotalers and maybe they were raised in the church and are Southern Baptist or something. And they were taught, you know, alcohol is a sin. Don't drink, you know, don't drink alcohol ever. Don't even look at it. Don't go in places that serve alcohol. And and sometimes those kids grow up and they're still Christians, but they stumble across Romans 14 and 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 Proverbs 31 and Psalms 104. And then they start wearing these free in Christ T-shirts and they drink alcohol anytime they can and anywhere they can and they drink it in public and they drink it at their parents' house and they're just flaunting their liberties and they pay no attention to who's around them. Maybe they even sit across from the guy who is struggling, who hasn't had a drop of alcohol in three years, because when he takes a sip of alcohol, he drinks gallons of alcohol and it goes terribly for him and his family. But hey, this guy's free in Christ and he's going to drink where he's going to drink. And that's Your problem, not his. Now, what's he doing? He is prioritizing his liberties over loving God and loving others. And, friends, that is sinful. That is sinful. Paul said, I'm willing to give up all my liberties for love for God and others. Romans 14, Paul makes it very clear that he was a steakhouse man. Paul loved meat. We can argue that. He loved steak. He was a good Christian. He loved steak. He loves steak, and some people had a conscience issue in that day. We don't have this issue anymore. But there were sacrifices, there were meat being made, and animals were being slain and sacrificed to these idols. And then the big debate was well, can Christians eat that meat or not? Is it contaminated? Is it stained? And Paul's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. You know, you're free in in Christ. Uh, It wasn't even offered to a real God anyway, so you are free to eat that meat. But then he said that he recognized that there were people who had weak consciences when it came to this. Their conscience was weak. In other words, it didn't line up exactly with God's word. But for these people, it was really important. No, I can't eat that meat. I can't eat that meat. I can't eat that meat. Do you remember what Paul said, though he loved steak? He said, in order to reach these people and love these people and share the gospel with these people, if it means that that my eating this meat is a stumbling block to them and creates a barrier for the gospel. Remember what he said? He said, I'll never eat meat again. That's the attitude. That's the attitude. It is a sin to idolize our liberties. Now, the flip side of that. Some Christians don't treat alcohol as a liberty. Some Christians treat alcohol as legalistically. As I alluded to a moment ago. And we'll say that, no, alcohol is a sin. They'll put a megaphone up to their conscience and, and, and promote it as a universal sin. It's for everybody. Nobody should ever touch alcohol, not if you're a real Christian anyway. And so there can also be a sin to idolize your legalisms, which is very common, very common, maybe even more common than the former, which is very common in the church today. And the question here is, when you look at rules that you have that maybe aren't God's rules, but are you prioritizing the defense of your legalisms over loving God? And loving others. And so Christians will begin to dissociate with other Christians. And there becomes the Christians who do not drink. And we're not going to spend time with the Christians who do drink. And Romans 14 talks about the same thing. It says, do not look down on those who practice this differently. They are not in sin. And grace and mercy needs to cover this. So people can begin to idolize their legalisms. And there's a lot of legalism when it comes to alcohol. Listen, as we're seeing as an example in this story today, alcohol can be very dangerous. And alcohol can lead to great sins. And drinking too much alcohol almost always leads to even more serious sin. But we must resist the tendency to in an effort to avoid breaking some rules in God's word to make up our own rules that keep us from getting even close to breaking the actual rules in God's word. And this is what happens when we begin to say that it is a sin to drink alcohol. Well, evil can come from it. Therefore, we should prohibit it. Well, in that case, we should prohibit speaking. And sex. There are many things that God has given to us that can be used well and can be a gift from God that can be misused and abused. And the hard work is using wisdom and discernment and to enjoy the gifts that God has given us without abusing them and no longer prioritizing love for God and love for others. This was really big during the temperance movement, which preceded prohibition when many pastors advocated for making alcohol illegal and outlawing it completely because of the sins that came from it to the point where one pastor, you've heard me tell this story before, read 1 Timothy five three where Paul encourages Timothy, listen, Timothy, you're a nervous wreck. I encourage you to use some wine to settle your stomach. But the man, this pastor holding to his gun said, no, 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 no. What he was talking about was the external application of wine to the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> That's a stretch. But this is what you have to do if you begin prioritizing your legalisms. You end up making the Bible say things that it actually doesn't say. And then finally, it is a sin, as we learn of here and elsewhere, it is a sin to drink too much. It is a sin to drink too much. Drunkenness, Christians, is inexcusable. Drunkenness is not acceptable. And if we are drinking, not to enjoy the drink, but if we are drinking to get to a point where we are drunk, we are in grievous sin. And the reason we are in such serious sin and the reason God takes drunkenness so seriously is because the Bible takes self-control so seriously. We are to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. In control of our speech, in control of our behavior, in control of our mind. And we must be in control of those things so that we can use our hands and our feet and our mouth and our eyes and our words to glorify and honor God. So we must be self-controlled men and women. And what happens when you drink too much is you get to a point where you are no longer self-controlled. And the sin tends to get worse and worse. So Christians must not just drink responsibly. Christians must drink righteously and Christians must drink in a way where when they drink, they remember that it is a gift from God and they praise and thank God for this good drink and they are watchful and careful lest they fall into sin. They pay attention to how hot it is outside. They pay attention to how much food they've had to eat. What kind of food have they had to eat? How many drinks have they consumed? We pay attention to these things because we want to honor God whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do it all for the glory of God. So that's our parenthesis here on alcohol. Uh, Verse 22, that's Noah's sin, but now we have Ham's greater sin and shame. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. And then we see this does not go well for him. There are consequences for Ham and, and for his family. Some have tried to make this sin something that it's not. Because some have read this and, and thought to themselves, this doesn't seem like that big a deal. He has Noah's fault. Noah drank too much, should have kept his pants on. This isn't Ham's fault. I mean, he's asking for it. And all Ham does is go in there and he goes and tells his brothers. And he probably was just telling his brothers because he wanted to help dad out. Maybe we just start assuming the best in him. So then we see Noah's reaction, God's reaction. Like, that is an overreaction. So, commentators, some have tried to make his sin worse than it was. Oh, he castrated Noah. Commentators have said, that is not in the Bible. He did not castrate Noah. That is serious reading between the lines. He sexually assaulted his father, some have said. and Therefore, it's worthy of these consequences. He did not sexually assault his father. He slept with his mother and Canaan was the child. Some have said that. That is not what Ham did. But what Ham did was wicked. What Ham did was evil. Let's try to understand why it was so significant. First of all, we go to one of the Ten Commandments. If you make the Ten Commandments, you're, you're an important rule. This is God, and there's ten of them. Ten. And one of them is in Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul repeats it in Ephesians chapter 6. Honoring your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just something that's a good idea. It may, along with the Sabbath, it may be one of the it may be the commandment that is most neglected, perhaps in our day and age that is not taken as seriously as it should. We are called by God to honor our father and mother ham broke this commandment of God. In a serious way, a few things to notice. number one, this wasn't an accident, this wasn't an accident. this was deliberate. Ham has a plan that he's carrying out here, and it's a sinful plan. He didn't just stumble into this and find himself in this situation. I believe what the author is doing when it says that Ham, the father of Canaan, it says it again in in verse twenty three here, but he just told us that you remember? At the beginning of our passage, that he just told us in the parentheses that he was the father of Canaan. And here it tells us again, he's the father of Canaan. I don't think Moses, when he writes this, thinks that we forgot that this is about the Canaanites. I, don't, I think he's making the point here that Ham is a dad. He has kids. He should know better. What would you want your son to do, Ham? You're a father, and here you are walking in on your father. What is an appropriate way for you to respond to this? And instead, Ham acts deliberately and deliberately sinful. Second thing to note is that it pleased Ham to see his father fall. There was a joy that Ham took in the father of his sin because he's going to go tell others about it. He exulted. In his father's failures. Maybe he'd been drunk before and rebuked by his father. Remember, his father was a preacher of righteousness. And so here you start to see the resentment that comes out in Ham when he rejoices in the sin of others. Friends, it is a serious sin when we rejoice in the sin of others. We should pity those who are in sin, which means there should be a a sadness and a sorrow. Because of painful circumstances, one finds themselves in pity is the proper emotion, not rejoicing. When someone is rejoicing in the sin of others, it is a sign that they are not repentant. They're not dealing with their own sin. You cannot be repentant and dealing with your own sin and rejoicing in the sin of others. Now, if you're ignoring your sin and if you're pretending you do not sin. You may rejoice in the sin of others. Obadiah chapter one, verse 12 says, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. We should take no pleasure in Someone else suffering and someone else is suffering and is headed for more, more suffering when they're in sin. We should not rejoice in that. Proverbs fourteen nine says that fools mock at the guilt offering. But the upright enjoy acceptance. It was deliberate. This was pleasing to him to see his father fall. And then he publicizes his father's sin. It says he went out to tell his brothers. It literally means he told his brothers in the street. So he's caught his father in sin. And now he's spreading the gossip of his father's sin, starting with his two brothers. To do this with anyone is terrible. To rejoice in someone's sin and then to gossip about it to someone else is terrible. To do this with your parents is sinful. This is wicked. What Ham does this is the equivalent to this would be like posting a picture of his dad on Facebook. This is what Ham does. He is spreading the word of what his father did. And children were commanded are to obey their parents, to honor. Their parents. Ham does not honor his father, he mocks his father. Here's another way to look at this. Remember that Noah is not only Ham's father, Noah was Ham's savior. Noah was God's instrument to save this family. Do you remember this family was saved because of the faith of who? Of Noah. So when Ham is mocking his father, he is not just. So that is breaking God's command. He is not just mocking his father. He is mocking his savior. His savior. The man through whom this entire family was saved by God. Therefore, Ham is not unlike, I would say, Ham is not unlike those on the way to Calvary, those on the way to the cross who mocked Jesus their Savior, who spit on Him, who jeered at Him. This is the sin of Ham. Well, here you are, Dad. (laughs) Always telling us, be careful how much you drink. Always telling us that we should live holy and upright lives and, and be righteous. And here you are, drunk, naked, in your tent. This is great. Hey everybody, look at, look at Dad. Look at the preacher of righteousness. He's a fake. He's a failure. He's nobody. I say this so you, you feel the weight of what it is that Ham is doing when he sins against his father Noah. But Noah had two good sons. It is amazing what they do. It is amazing what they do. They honor God. They honor their father. They behave opposite their little brother. Verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. What a sad and sorrowful place for Noah to be. Fell into temptation, fell into sin, lost all self-control. Now, here he is. He doesn't even know it. And he's completely exposed for anyone to come in and see him. And it was fuel for the mocking of him. But look how Shem and Japheth handled this. First of all, did, did, did Noah deserve to be Honored by his sons in this case. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He was worthy of dishonor, not honor. But God called Noah's sons to honor their father no matter what. And so when they hear that their dad is naked, they handle his nakedness in a completely different way from their little brother. Nakedness in your Bible is a huge deal. Nakedness in your Bible always means shame after Genesis 2.25. It is always associated with shame. It is always associated with sin. The garden is the only place where it says in the in, in the man and the woman. Were naked and unashamed. And the reason they were naked and unashamed. The reason they could be naked. And comfortable in front of one another. Is because there was no sin. There was no sin within. There was no reason to be ashamed. There was no reason to hide. There was nothing to conceal. And so that was represented physically. And and outwardly. In that they were naked and unashamed. And then you see that when sin comes. What is the first thing they do? They begin to hide themselves. Because shame is that painful feeling that we feel when we, conscious of our sin, feel the the looking on of others. And it's so intense. And this is what shame is. This is why we are ashamed and embarrassed when we don't have clothes on. Some of you have had nightmares about this. I have not. I hear it's a classic nightmare. In your dream, you're in front of people, you have no clothes on, and it's absolutely terrifying. That sounds to me absolutely terrifying. Why is it terrifying? Because there is something that happens when we are exposed outwardly and externally that is so emotionally embarrassing and painful because of the realities that we know of, of our internal sin and shame before a holy God. We know so well our internal imperfections and our sinfulness before God that the thought of anyone looking at us closely and the thought of anyone seeing us for who we are makes us extremely uncomfortable. And this is the result of sin. So Ham sees that and makes a spectacle out of his father. And the two boys then, it says, right away, they go and look for a covering for dad. Maybe this just moves me because I have I have I have boys. But I'm just I'm moved at how these two boys handle their dad. He did not deserve what Shem and Japheth did. Bible tells us they go and they find a blanket. Can okay, they take this blanket and they, they put it over their shoulders and you read how careful they are. They are so careful. Not only to not spread word of what their father did, but to not even gaze upon his nakedness themselves. And so they're very careful, it tells us, it says this word backward over and over again. So they're walking in carefully and slowly and backwards. And they have this blanket over their bodies and over their heads. They get to the place where they find their father. And then very carefully, very carefully, they cover they cover his sin. They cover his shame. And then they still, not looking at their father, they walk out of the tent. And you can bet they stood guard and waited for dad to wake up. You see what they're doing is they're imitating. They're imitating what their God did for Adam and Eve in the garden. Here were Adam and Eve caught in sin Totally ashamed in front of one another, ashamed in front of God, hiding from one another, hiding from God. And God comes down and just loves them and blesses them and talks to them tenderly and makes them all these promises, just does what they do not deserve and what you would not expect. And then what does he do after he, he, he blesses them with these words? He blesses them with his behavior And God covers them in animal skins and he makes proper clothing for them. He says, listen, you're sinful. There there is going to be remaining sin in you until this is all done. And I know that shame is going to be a very real part of, of your life, but I'm going to help protect you from your shame. It's not going to be as bad as it could be. And it's not going to be as bad as it could be because I'm going to be a God who covers you. They're following their God's example when they do the exact same thing and protecting their father's honor and dignity. They back in regardless of what dad deserves. There's no, you get what's coming to you and I guess you're going to have to reap what you sow, dad. They walk in and cover their father and honor him. The wonderful text. Verse 24. Now Noah's reaction, the curse and, and blessing hung over Noah. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, not his sleep, his wine, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, we don't know how he knows, but he he found out maybe his, his other sons told him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. So Noah here, following Ham's grievous sin, prophesies about the future of his family. This is what Noah is doing. He's prophesying about looking at his three boys. And he's prophesying about the future of his family. It's much like Isaac will do in chapter 27. We'll get to. And it's much like Jacob will do in chapter 49. When Isaac looks at his sons, Jacob and Esau, and he prophesies about the future of his family and his children. And Jacob, when he looks at his family, and he prophesies about their future. This is what Noah is doing. But Noah is doing this right on the heel of Ham's sin. And the summary, the summary of this prophecy, pretty simple. His summary is that it is the future is not going to go well for Ham and for his son, Canaan and the generations to follow. So he looks at one of his boys and he says, it is not going to go well for you and yours, and it is going to go well for Shem and Japheth. And we're going to see this in chapter 10. This is also a trailer of what's of what's to come in chapter 10. But Noah looks at his kids. It's going to go well for you, Shem and Japheth. It is not going to go well for you, Ham. I think that this text probably sounds unfair to some of you. I remember feeling that. So I'm going to suppose that some of you may feel that way. When you read Noah's reaction to what happened, it may feel it may seem unfair. Because Noah says cursed not be ham. Right? What does he say? Cursed be Canaan. So you may feel a sense of injustice well up inside of you when you hear that and ask yourself, what did Canaan do? It wasn't Canaan that walked in. It was his dad that walked in. So why is Canaan getting cursed? What did Canaan do to deserve what Noah, Noah, you were the one. This never would have happened if you hadn't drank too much wine. This is, this is your fault. I'm not even sure I see the guilt in your son Ham, let alone your grandson. So Noah, why are you looking at your grandson who seemingly was not in, involved in this and cursing him? And, and that concern, that concern, I'm guessing for some of you, Reminds you of some other troubling verses in the Bible. Namely, Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That verse is troubling for many Christians, and it sounds like that's what's taking place here. God visits the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. Wait, that doesn't seem fair. What did they do? Why are they being punished? Wait, Canaan is being cursed. That doesn't seem fair. It was Ham who came in and sinned against his father. And so we've got this problem here in Genesis where God is cursing Canaan. And then the bigger question, does God punish children for their parents' sin? As Exodus 34.7 seems to say. So first. Before we answer that question, does God punish children for their parents' sin? Let me give what I hope will be four helpful observations in dealing with Noah's dealing with Canaan, his grandson, regarding the sin of his son, Ham. And then we'll wrap this up. Four, I hope, to be helpful observations. Number one, something about Noah. I don't think... I rarely say the word think, so just take this with a grain of salt. I don't think that Noah is angry in verses 24 through 27. And I think that's really important. When Noah is announcing this curse and this blessing, when he's making this prophecy about the future of his family, I don't think that Noah is angry. And I think we tend to read that into the text because we think, well, He's been drunk. He was passed out. He woke up. He's hungover. He finds out what happened. And then he goes and addresses. So we we kind of insert when we read it. I used to do this. We insert all these exclamation points. Right? Cursed are you, Canaan! And we, we assume... That Noah is angry when he's saying these words. And I think if we read that into the text. Because it doesn't say that Noah starts throwing furniture around. It doesn't say that he raised his voice. It doesn't say that his eyes got big. That he boiled over. So, so it's up to us. Is he what, what emotion is going on here? And I think we do harm to what's happening here. If you think of Noah as angry. I, I think Noah is prophesying reluctantly here. As the prophets often did. Now, we speak truth and we say truth even if the truth hurts and even if we don't aren't comfortable with the truth and if it pains us, but we speak the truth. I think Noah is probably, when he prophesies about his family and he sees these branches that are going to go out and one that's going to die with no fruit and two that are going to be fruitful, I think his heart's broken. And if nothing else, I just say that as a dad. I think his heart's broken when he looks at his son and his grandson standing there and predicts their future enabled by God. So I think it's sorrow and sadness that is probably in Noah's heart when he says this to his boys. So maybe when you're reading it, think of Noah, sorrowful and sad, not angry. Number two, when it comes to Ham, lest we think that this is an overreaction. Remember, it is important to recognize that this account is not just telling us what Ham did. This is telling us who Ham is. This is not an isolated incident. Anytime you have someone in your Bible and you've got no accounts of their life except for one story of their life, that, that one story is given to, to be indicative of who they are. It is representative of, of who they are. So we're not to assume that, that Ham was this wonderful son, this great son who, who just did wonderful things for his mom and dad, always honored his mom and dad, and then one time he messes up and God nails him. That is not the case. You've got this one story about Ham, and so this one story is meant to be representative of, of who this man is. This is summarizing the man. So his sin is significant and representative of, of who the son is. Number three, I hope a helpful observation. Remember that Noah is speaking prophetically. In other words, Noah is not here controlling the future. He is predicting the future. So Noah does not wake up angry and he's like, that's it. I've been given this power by God to determine the future of my family. And so I'm going to look at you, son, and you're going to suffer and your children are going to suffer forever because of what you've done. And you two boys, you did the right thing. And so you guys are, everything's going to go well. That's not so much what Noah is, is doing here. Noah knows that he is. He looks at, at his boys. He knows where curse is going to come and he knows where blessing is going to come. And he knows in these moments how God is going to move and direct things in this family. Remember, Noah, nor any mere man can control the future. God controls it. It's called providence. Providence is God working throughout history. Whatever comes to pass is God's Providence. It's all from the hand of God. God is in control, not Noah. So Noah is not here taking out his anger on his grandson. Just get that out. That's not what's taking place. And then finally, fourth, rather, we are learning the results of the sinfulness of Ham, that it will be generational. Who Ham is and what Ham does is so significant That is not going to just be self-contained. Ham's sin does not just affect Ham. It affects his kids. His sin screws up his kids. And it screws up his grandkids. And it screws up his great-grandkids. The decisions he makes. And the ways he lives. The the ways that he lives. the, the, The rebellion in his heart against God is going to be passed on to his family. We have expressions for this, like father, like son. Okay, children tend to imitate their parents. Ham is not someone you'd want his children to imitate, but, but his children will inherit the father's wickedness. His children will imitate their father's wicked practices. So in a sense, what what Noah is doing when he looks and sees the future of this family and looks at Canaan, the son, the grandson, who is probably next to his son, perhaps even participating in the mockery. What Noah is seeing and what Noah is saying is, Canaan, you are just like your dad. And your life is cursed because of your rebellion against God, which you learned from your dad. You're just imitating him. You're just following in old dad's footsteps. You're just as wicked as he is. Following him and not following the Lord. It is not going to go well for you. And it is not going to go well for this family. This is what Noah is doing. This is what Noah is saying when he looks out with a broken heart at his three sons and knows the direction their lives are headed. And then we come to the question, does God punish children for their parents' sin? Does God punish children for their parents' sin? And we would want to say yes and no. Let me explain. Does God punish children for their parents' sin? Yes and no. There's truths that we need to hold on to here in Scripture and to be careful not to throw any of them out. In one sense, we know this, that if and when we're looking at verses that talk about children being punished for their parents' sin, we know that God's judgment is never arbitrary. This is huge. God's judgment is never arbitrary. God only punishes the guilty. So God never takes someone innocent. And punishes them because of someone who is guilty. That happened one time. On the cross. God never deals. With people this way. God never takes the innocent. And and, and piles consequences. For their parents or their grandparents sin on them. That they do not deserve. And yet. Yet. While we know that's true, that does not mean that parents are at liberty to do whatever they want. Oh, My sins don't affect my kids. I know that my kids aren't going to be punished for my sin. And so what is the big deal? We need to guard against that and understand and consider the impact of parents' sin on their children. But here's the two verses that seem to say both sides. Exodus 34, 7. I just read it. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation seems pretty clear with that text that God punishes children for their parents sin. But we also read in Second Kings 14, six Amaziah did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. And So you might read those at first and say, well, wait a minute. What is God actually saying? Because it seems like the sins do get punished down the line. But now it seems like the sins do not get punished down the line. So let me give you two in conclusion points from John Piper. He says it much better than I would. Number one. The sins of the fathers are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. That's different. And that's heavy. So what Scripture is not saying, God is not looking at a dad and saying, Son, grandson, at some point I'm going to get you. Because of what your dad did. God does not say that. But what it does say is that the sins of the fathers are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. Too often and grievously, kids grow up just like their sinful moms and dads. Mom and dad hate God. Sons and daughters hate God. Mom and dad rebel against God. They teach their kids to rebel against God. Mom and dad live sinful lives apart from God. Sons and daughters live sinful lives apart from God. It's tragic and it's true. And that the children of these fathers are punished in the sense that the sins of the father become the sins of the children. They turn out sinfully just like their parents. But they are not innocent. Exodus 25 says it. I, the Lord, visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You hear that additional phrase here that's helpful? So it's the children's children. And yes, I'm punishing them, but they are those who hate me. You hated me, Dad. Your son hates me. And your grandchildren hate me. And your great-grandchildren hate me. So you picture a family tree, it's an ungodly family tree. There's no fruit on this tree. There's no leaves on this tree. It is an ungodly tree. And it keeps sending out shoots. And it keeps sending out branches, reproducing what the rest of the tree looks like. And it's not getting any better. It's only getting worse. The application to us is ungodly parents need to take heed. Ungodly parents should take heed and be warned and become watchful when you understand these biblical principles. It is not funny when you look at your children and you see them doing the same sinful things that you do. That is not cute even as kids and it is not funny. And parents who do not love Jesus and who do not love God should turn should turn to God, should repent of their sin. And one of not thee, but one of the motivations is your love for your children. Do you love your kids? Do you want the best for your kids? Do you want to pass on good to your children? Then parents must deal with their sin. What we learn here in this account is that parents cannot sin and think that it's just going to be contained in themselves. Parents cannot sin and think that they're the only ones who are going to suffer consequences for their sin. No, your sin may have great consequence for your kids. And in Ham's case, he had great, 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 great grandchildren who were wicked and sinful because that's what he passed on to them. And he did not take the Lord seriously. We must take serious godliness. And then number two, because of God's grace which is finally secured by Christ, the children can confess their own sins and the sins of their fathers and be forgiven and accepted by God. Now here the application is for godly children with ungodly parents. So, Some of you kids, you might get discouraged when we hammer that first point. Ungodly parents take heed lest you pass on all this sinfulness of your kids and they end up screwed up just like you. And some of you hear that and you think, well, I, I had ungodly parents. And some of you either do feel or you have felt like you're locked in. Well, this is who I am. I see my family tree and it's not pretty. Just sin, sin and sin. Godlessness, Ungodliness. I can go back generations and there's no fruit on that tree. There's no fruit on that tree. So you see that first point. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean for me? So we've, we've got to hear God's word also say that because of God's grace, which is finally secured by Christ, the children can confess their own sins and the sins of their fathers and be forgiven and accepted by God. In the Old Testament, you have all these kings, right? And the, the king is a king and then he dies and his son takes over and his son takes over and his son takes over. And typically what you find is this, right? Dad walked in the eyes of the Lord, so his, his, his son Walked in the eyes of the Lord. The Dad was, was sinful and did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And so the son was sinful and did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And that's usually the pattern, isn't it? And then once in a while. You see a kid. You're like, where did he come from? Because his dad did what was wicked and, and evil and sinful. And then here's his little boy. He grows up. And it says he did what was Right. In the eyes of the Lord. Well, let's answer the what happened with Scripture. God's grace. God's grace. God's grace. I'm going to break this cycle. I'm going to break this cycle. I'm going to start a new tree. I'm going to start a new tree. Some of you kids, and we're all kids. (laughs) We've all got moms and dads. You need to hear this. I think I see this illustrated at, at my house and hang with me. We've, we've got a lot of trees at my house. So when I read about trees, I've got like over a hundred trees. When I read about trees in the Bible, I've got a lot of trees to look at. And we've got this one tree, a silk tree. And it's, uh, it's not in good shape, It's not in good shape. And uh, you can go up and you can just you can peel the the wood off this tree. It's, it's still alive, but it's barely, barely hanging in there. OK, it's my ungodly tree. <laughs> there's ungodly no righteousness on this tree, no love for God, it's it's just rebellion. There's nothing. Nothing good is coming from this tree, it would look like. But then here's the interesting thing that, that happens. Um, birds like this tree. And there's these little pods and there's these little seeds that bird like birds like on the silk tree on our, on our property. And what the birds do is they they, they take these seeds in their mouth and they fly around my property and they drop these seeds. And do you know what happens when they drop these seeds sometimes? I've got a new silk tree. And so I have all over our property, I have these, these saplings. And sometimes they're not where I want them to be. But you know what? They're always in great shape. They're always beautiful. They're, they're they're perfect. There's no blemishes. There's no problems. But I look at the tree that they came from. It's a dead, rotting tree. Some of you see that the, the God, by His grace, okay, you are a new sapling. And God did not have much to work with. <laughs> but He carried you from that. And you know what he's starting now? By God's grace for generation and generation and generation. Look right through your kids eyes and see their grandkids and their great grandkids and their great, great grandkids. You know what God is starting in you, perhaps a young sapling. There's not going to be a dead, rotting tree. But a beautiful tree with a lot of fruit. Can we say that without you having something to boast in? This is not you and it's not me. It is God's grace. We should have just been a shoot off that dead tree. But by God's grace, he has carried many of you and he is doing a new work in you. And maybe a real tough work right now. Maybe a tough work. By God's grace, maybe our children are a little farther along. You dream like that? Maybe our grandchildren are even further along. Maybe you're great grandkids. I'm going to look at my kids and say, I hope you guys honor God more than I do. I hope you glorify God more than I do. I hope you're more holy than I am. I hope God is is more pleased with you than He probably is with me. We have reason to hope and pray like that because of God's Word. Let's pray. Uh, Father in Heaven, thank You for Your work in saving us. God, thank You, God, for, for doing something impossible in us. For doing something impossible in our hearts. God, I pray that we would grow in our understanding of just how impossible our changed life is. So that we would love You more and thank You more and praise You more. If anybody here, God, is holding on to anything, any pride, any arrogance, the, any patting on the back, God, I pray that you'd You'd take it. God, that we would remember that we are who we are. You're you're redeemed who are here this morning, that we are who we are. As Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It is your grace, God. I thank you for those people in this room who are who are new saplings, who are who are new trees, who are produced by your grace are producing good fruit. I thank You, God, for for carrying them away from something and planting them in new, fertile soil, the soil of the Gospel. Thank You for bringing people into their life who had proclaimed Your Word and who watered it, and then You being the God who made it grow. You'll grow us, Lord. Make us more like You for Your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.